Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet ye obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Thank you, Mark, for reading that passage and getting that uh, text in front of us. And thank you, Derek, wherever Derek went, uh, for that last song that we sang, because that basically uh, preached my lesson for me. You wish. <laughs> I heard you, Sam. Sam said, yay. In Thomas Costain's history book entitled The Three Edwards, he describes the life of a 14th century duke in the place that is now called Belgium. Reynal III, who was also called Crassus, that's important that you understand that he has two different names, he got into a violent quarrel with his younger brother Edward, who had led a successful revolt against him. And Edward captured Reynald, but in a, uh, a moment of, of, of sanity, he decided not to kill him. This, by the way, is a classic case of sibling rivalry. Instead, what he did was build a room around Reynald in the Newkirk Castle and, and promised him that he would regain his title and his property as, as soon as he was able to leave that room. Well, that's kind of a head-scratcher, but let me explain. That would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows. It had a door there of, of normal size, and, and, and none of those doors or windows were locked or barred. The problem was, well, the problem was Reynald's size. You see, in the Latin, the word crassus means fat, and Reynald was grossly obese. So to regain his freedom... He'd have to lose some weight in order to be able to pass through the door. And, and, and that was the, a great challenge for him. Well, uh, to, to do that, Edward knew his older brother well. And, and, and every day, what he did was send in a, a, a mixture of different, very rich foods. Very fattening foods. So when Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. He said, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he so wills. Reynald stayed in that room for the next 10 years, and he wasn't released until after his brother Edward had died in battle. By then, his health was so ruined that he died within a year of his older brother's death. Reynald, and I'm using that illustration, I know it's not politically correct, but it still, I think, illustrates very powerfully a spiritual situation, a, a dimension in our lives that we need to be very much aware of. And that is that we can live in a prison of our own making. He had a lot of company. And each of us, as we decide, as we talked about last week, when we look at Romans chapter 6, none of us has any choice about the reality of spiritual slavery or servanthood. Everyone is going to be a servant to someone or something. So we really don't have any choice about that. What we do have a choice about is who we will be a servant to. And that's really what I want us to look at this morning. Last Sunday at five o'clock, we were studying, as we've been doing for the last few weeks, the wilderness wanderings and drawing contemporary lessons from, uh, uh, from those experiences. And we talked about the, the importance of worship. 
And I said in light of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that we may be making our people happy, but not holy. We may be wooing our people, but not warning them. And I want us to know before we get very deeply into Romans chapter 6 this morning that Paul here, this is not easy stuff. This isn't easy material. He is, he is definitely warning us. And he's telling us that there is this part of our lives that we've got to make sure that we have intact. That, that the priorities in our life need to be in the right place. So the question that I'm asking very simply this morning in light of the text that we're going to be studying is whose slave are you? You're going to be a slave to somebody or something. And so we've got to make that decision in our lives. Look at all, first of all, in in our text, what God has done for us. And I think that will really serve as a foundation for what we want to talk about this morning. And this is Romans. Well, actually, I want to back up to Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. As you walk through chapter 5, look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. Paul outlines all that God has done for us in the death of Jesus Christ. All of this is encapsulated for us by Jesus' death on the old Roman cross. And and first of all, he says, we've been, if you'll notice the text, we've been justified by his blood. And then he says, we've been reconciled through his death. And then we've been saved through his life. That's a good three-point sermon right there. But we're not going to be talking about that specifically this morning. But all of these things come to us. Because of the fact that Jesus was willing to make that sacrifice. He said, nobody takes my life from me. I I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus voluntarily, willingly died so that all of these things might be accomplished for us. And then he ends the chapter by talking about the power of grace. Look at chapter 5, verse 17. He calls it God's abundant provision of grace. I absolutely love the language there. Not just grace, but his abundant provision of grace. And three times he emphasizes that the power of grace is greater than the power of sin. Verse 17, verse 15, verse 17, and verse 20. And so he's saying, yes, this is a challenge for all of us. And and we need to recognize how important it is and how valuable it is what God has done for us in our spiritual lives. But mark it down. God's grace can overcome the power of sin in our lives if we will let it. Now, human nature being what it is, naturally, it wasn't long until some of the Roman believers found a way to misuse even God's grace. So please appreciate that at the end of chapter 5, Paul is talking about God's wonderful, abundant provision of grace. But notice how chapter 6 opens. It really shows their casual attitude towards sin. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. He asks the question, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? King James says that grace may abound. Their warped logic seemed to have been God gives us grace in order to forgive our sins. Grace is a good thing. And therefore, sin can't be all that bad. As far as they were concerned, it was the best of both worlds. They got to sin, God got to forgive them, and they're sitting there thinking, well, everybody's getting to do what they do best. So that can't be a bad thing. Paul says, think again. You see, those ancient Roman believers really have plenty of company in our modern world. And sadly, sometimes even in the church. We need to be very careful that we do not have a casual attitude about sin in our lives. And we're going to be talking about that in just a moment. But that's because there's never been a shortage of of half-hearted disciples and partly committed Christians who try to keep one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And Paul is going to talk about that. 
and he's going to warn them in no uncertain terms about that attitude. And Paul reacts to, to the thinking when he poses the question in verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Notice how he reacts in the first part of verse 2. He reacts rather violently. The King James says, he said, God forbid. Or one version says, may it never be. You have no question about what Paul's thinking is on that subject. He says disciples with that mentality have really misunderstood at least two fundamental things. And here they are. First of all, they've misunderstood the nature and the reason for their own baptism. Look at the latter part of verse 2 all the way down through verse 7. It is not accidental, it is not at random that Paul here talks about what our baptism really means. Baptism, he says, is a picture of death, of the death of Jesus on the cross, and then of our own death to sin. So just as Jesus died on the cross and then rose again after three days, you and I likewise are going to die. The old man of sin will die. We're going to be buried in water, and then we likewise are going to be raised to a brand new life. And that really is the good news of the gospel. So Paul is explaining, if you understood the nature of your baptism, you would not go on sinning. That would not be a part of your mindset, and it certainly would not be a part of your daily activity. Jesus did not endure that horrible death just so that we could continue to wallow in, in the mud of wickedness is the point that Paul is making here. He died, according to Paul, in order to give us that new life. You, you've got something better in store. You do not need to. God does not want you to waste your life in sin. Dominated by sin every day of your life. He wants you to be raised from the watery grave of baptism to live in a brand new life. Now whether, I've said this many times from this pulpit, but whether they know it or not, just about everybody in the world is looking for that. They're looking for a way to make a brand new start, to wipe their slate clean and to start all over again. There's only one way I know that we can do that effectively for the long haul. And that is to have our mistakes and our transgressions covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and that happens when a person obediently, that is with, with full knowledge, faith that comes by hearing, makes the decision, I'm now going to follow Jesus for the rest of my days. And they're baptized into Christ because that's where they contact his blood. In fact, Paul even says that here in Romans chapter 6. We're baptized into his death. That's where we contact his redeeming blood. So verse 6 says, for, as we know that, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Isn't that wonderful news? That the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And he wanted them to know that to be baptized and then to go right on sinning was a contradiction in terms. Now, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. But I'm suggesting that it still is a contradiction in terms. For a person to have the mentality of these Roman believers and to say, well, we'll just keep on sinning so that God can do what he does best. No, Paul said, you, you've already misunderstood what it is that you need to be doing. Here's the second thing that they had misunderstood. They had misunderstood the nature of sin. Not only of the design of their baptism, but the nature of sin. Look at these phrases. And, and I'm just walking through chapter 6. And picking out some verses, look at verse 12. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The word reign there, R-E-I-G-N, has to do with a king of, of royalty 
and, and the power and authority that he or she would exert over the people. So he said, whatever you do, when you become a Christian, when God grants you this new life, do not let sin continue to dominate and reign in your mortal body, or else you've misunderstood what becoming a disciple is all about. Secondly, look at verse 14, sin shall not be your master. Verse 16, don't you know that, that you are the slaves of whomever you obey? I think is implied in that passage that, that Paul is saying, you can claim to be anything you want to do. You can claim to be a disciple. You can call yourself a Christian. It's kind of like Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus said, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, that is acknowledges the Lordship of Jesus will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my father in heaven, you know, the verse, and that's really what he's implying here. You are the slave of whomever you obey, but I'm a Christian. But if I leave this building and I go out and I live just any way I want to, and I'm not the least bit concerned about the moral decisions and the spiritual decisions that I make on a day-to-day basis, guess what? I am a servant, a slave to the wrong thing. And it doesn't matter if I'm a card-carrying Christian or not. If I'm, if I'm obeying sin, if I'm living in sin consistently and habitually, then I'm a servant to the wrong thing. So sin isn't like breaking a rule in some dusty old legal code. It's really like punching a tar baby that won't let go. Sin isn't like a toy that you take down off the shelf and then you play with for a little while and when you're finished playing with it, you put it back on the shelf. It's more like grabbing a mountain lion by the ears. And that really is one of the major points that Paul will make in this wonderful and this powerful chapter. Sin isn't like going to a party to have a good time and then coming home to sober up. It's more like going to prison and having chains put around your neck and and on your hands and on your ankles. Sin, Sin is a dominating, devastating dictator is Paul's point. And you can't just dabble in it. You can't just play with it and expect to walk away unscathed. Paul said, it will take your life, it will take your spiritual existence, and it will take every relationship that ought to be important to you, and it will, it will put it through the threader. Um, imagine this, this devastating dictator that Paul is, is envisioning for us here. And, and he said, don't play with this sin because it has claws. It's not so much, Paul says, a matter of you playing with sin. Really, it's a matter of sin playing with you. In fact, we have a perfect analogy for the nature of sin expressed, experienced by, by these Christians and by us that I think a lot of us can relate to today. And it's the subject of addiction. We hear a lot about addiction. Let me stop and just define the term, if I may. An addiction is any activity that you will not give up. Even when it would be in your own best, best interest to quit that particular activity because you have surrendered your will to the power of that activity. That's an addiction. For example, there's a saying about the addiction of alcohol. And it goes like this. First, the man takes a drink. Then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. And that's true of a lot of other wrong moral decisions that we can make. Some researchers have said that Americans are the most addicted society on the face of the earth. I I think that they may well be right. Think of the list of things that people can become addicted to. And you can can just go on online and Google any of these subjects, and you'll find some 
I think, almost scary information about the nature of addiction to these activities. Things like marijuana and cocaine and nicotine and alcohol, and now prescription drugs of all kinds. But lest we think that the only kind of thing that we can be addicted to is drugs or something like that, Paul helps us in Romans chapter 6 to appreciate that we can be addicted to just about anything. There's psychological addiction as well as physical addiction. And one of the most frightening aspects, at least in my mind, of all of this is the fact that so many of our young people are again playing with fire. For a few years, the rates of addiction among our precious young people went down, but now it's going back up again. And it's heartbreaking to know that down the road, we're going to see so many lives ruined by the fact that these things have a hold of people and will not turn loose. And it's so very difficult to break that addiction. Now, not all addictions, and we need to make this clear, not all addictions start out as sin. Some people are addicted to just watching television or eating or, or even some, it's going to work. They are workaholics. And they'll keep it up even when it interferes with their family lives, even when it's hurting their health, both physically and spiritually. So not all addiction starts out as sin, but watch this carefully. Sin is always addictive. Paul makes that point in this chapter. People can and do just get hooked on just about anything. Things like anger and pornography and gambling and and greed and gluttony as much so as they can on any drug. And, And that's what Paul is trying to warn us about in this passage. He's telling us, In no uncertain terms, listen, church, please do not, do not take sin lightly. Here's another important point from, I'm I'm pulling this from verses 15 and 16. Paul says sin leads to slavery. That's kind of the premise that we're we're really dealing with today. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul uses the term slaves of sin. We've heard so much in our nation lately and even right here in our country, in our own city, about the atrocity of slavery. Nobody should want to own or be owned by another human being. Do I even need to say that out loud? But Paul says there is a spiritual slavery that we need to be equally concerned about. That that God gives each person the freedom to choose, but then he says, having chosen... We are not, watch this carefully, we are not free from the consequences of sin. Going back to last Sunday morning, everybody has free will. Yes, that's a a given. And God will not do anything to violate our free will. So we all have the power to choice. We can choose what kind of life we'll live. We can either be a Christian or not be a Christian. God has given us the power of choice. But we are not free from the power of the consequences of those choices. Said another way, sin is easy to get into, mighty hard to get out of. We can't trifle with sin and just walk away. We need to be absolutely, unalterably opposed to it. We can't just take a position of of peaceful coexistence with sin. It, It doesn't work that way. And Paul is helping us to see that. So don't play around with sin and and don't play around with the temptation that leads to sin. Whenever a person says of any sinful practice, you know, I can take it or leave it. You can mark it down. He's taking it. And Paul says that's, that's the warning part of this address. That's, that's why we need to be very careful, especially in a society saturated by sin and temptation. And also look at verse 19. He says sin is self-reinforcing. 
He talks about ever-increasing wickedness. And, And that's why I said a moment ago that it can become addictive in a heartbeat. Is that we're never satiated, we're never gratified with a low-level life of sin. With those decisions then come greater decisions and, and, and more slavery to the sin in our lives. There's, there's a dangerous assumption, I think, that we often take about the practice of sin that Paul is addressing here. Sometimes people say even about their own children. Well, as if to rationalize wrong decisions, everybody's just got to sow their wild oats. Well, that may be true, but I don't think it is. But even if you acknowledge the premise behind that statement, remember harvest is still coming. Remember Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So even granted the fact that every one of us has the right to make our own choices, we also have to recognize that if we sow our wild oats, we're going to have to expect a very bitter harvest. Now, here's an example of that, and that's anger. I don't know if you've noticed this, but anger is a prevailing emotion in our society today. It's almost impossible to ride up and down Atlanta Highway without seeing some kind of road rage. I mean, people are angry about everything. And I think, this is my judgment, not Bible, that a part of that is the easy access to information that we have on social media. That is, we get to think and hear about everything that everybody is thinking and doing nowadays. It used to be, if something happened on the other end of town, you didn't hear about it. But now we hear about everything. Anger. I mean, people are so angry. Now, here's a tricky part of that. The more angry, more angry people indulge their anger, the stronger and the meaner their anger becomes. I mean, we've heard even therapists tell us that we need to vent our anger and not suppress it because to suppress our anger would be unhealthy. Now, here's what I've noticed about people who go around venting their anger. They become very good and proficient at venting. It does suppressing it. It's not an option for a person of that mentality. Scripture tells us that we need to discipline ourselves. We don't need to give in to our baser nature. We don't need to vent every time we think a thought that might hurt someone's feelings. God's word tells us that the more we practice a sin, the better we become at sinning. And that's one of the reasons why it's addictive and why it can easily become our master. Let me tell you something. Sin sin is a monster that you don't want to feed. I'm going to flip over just a few chapters to Romans 13. Listen to verse 14 in Romans 14. Clothe yourselves... With the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not, here's the real important part that I want us to note, do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. You hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, leave it alone. Don't even think about how that you might gratify those particular appetites that you possess. And then finally, Paul tells us in verses 20 and 21, back in Romans 6, that sin is self-destructive. He says very clearly, these things lead To a well-rounded, wholesome, healthy life. No, he says these things lead to death. Paul Harvey used to tell a grisly but revealing story about how an Eskimo kills a wolf. That may sound familiar because I put it in, I think, last week's bulletin. So if you want to know the the details, go back and reread the bulletin article. But he says, first, the Eskimo will coat the knife blade with animal blood. 
and he will allow it to freeze. And then he adds another layer of blood and another layer and another until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes the knife in the ground with the blade pointing upward. And so there it is, covered with layers of blood. And, and when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and he discovers the bait, of course, he licks it. And he, he tastes the blood and he likes what he's tasting. So it begins to look faster and faster. And more and more vigorously lapping at the blade until the edge is now bare. Harder and harder, he, he licks that blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf doesn't even notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blood on his own tongue. He doesn't recognize the instant in which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. I, I know that's a secular illustration but Paul is really telling us, listen, sin is, is just like that, but in a spiritual and eternal way. Playing with sin is like jumping into quicksand. Real easy to jump in. Almost impossible to get out of. But thank God that God has provided us a rope, a lifeline with a divine lift up and a way out. And I am absolutely delighted that I can end this lesson this morning with some really, really Good news. Look at verses 17 and 18 one more time. But thanks be to God, Paul writes, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You're still a slave. But you were earlier an involuntary slave to sin. Now you are a voluntary slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then look at verses 22 and 23. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit that you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, yes, it's a gloomy idea. It's certainly a warning that we all need to take heed too. But still, the reality is that while we're all slaves to someone or something, we get to choose who it is that we're going to follow, whose footsteps that we're going to follow in, whose voice we're going to listen to. And it doesn't have to be the world. It doesn't have to be sin that leads to death. Again, he reminds us that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. We understand that. We're squared away on that. But Paul says that God has given us a lifeline. And we can become slaves of righteousness. We can break the addiction of sin. We can escape the clutches of the domination of sin in our lives. But we must give ourselves wholeheartedly to righteousness. Paul says that's the key to it. So I end this lesson with the same question with which we began. Whose slave are you? If you're an accountable age this morning, you've made that decision at some point. But the good news is we don't have to live with the consequences of having made the wrong decision. The Lord's invitation is always open to those who believe, who are willing to turn their back on that sin in sincere repentance, to confess the name of Jesus as God's son, and to be baptized just as we talked about in Romans chapter 6, where we contact his redeeming blood. And we are now emancipated from the domination of sin in our lives. 
And now Paul says, you are free to go and live your life to the fullest, the way God intended for you to. And if that's what you need to do this morning, we bid you come while we stand and while we sing.